I need to be diversified across geographies, asset classes, and operators. You really want to just bring it down to the most essential pieces. That's what I find very important especially from a real estate perspective. Best ever listeners, before we get into today's episode, I want to mention DoorDevil. You know what? I need to mention DoorDevil. I need to mention DoorDevil to you. It's not just a want. It's a need because you need this. DoorDevil, quite simply, defends your home against kick-in burglary attacks. They happen frequently. There are 1.4 million homes that are broken into every year, and a lot of them are done through kick-ins. If you've got a home security system, then props to you. I'm glad you've got that, and that's important. But it doesn't prevent the bad people from kicking in your door, whether it's your front door, your back door, your side door. You need something like the Door Devil, and Door Devil is the best in the business when it comes to providing proof that it works. You can go to doordevil.com and even watch a video with Terry Bradshaw talking about it. And you can see how it works. It's a very simple product to install. But if you're not into that, then you can just hire a handy person and they can they can install it for you. Very simple. Put it inside the door frame of your front door, your back door, every door you have. And you can defend your home against the kick-in burglary attacks. It's needed. In addition, this is my brother's company. So it's near and dear to my heart. And because it's my brother's company, I'm able to offer you an exclusive discount because he was so kind to do so. You can go when you check out your uh, purchase at doordevil.com and there's going to be a little field. You enter the word best ever, no space, just one word, best, B-E-S-T-E-V-E-R, and you'll get a 20% discount on your purchase. So go to doordevil.com, go buy it, enter best ever and secure your home against kick-in burglary attacks. There are so many testimonials on the website. You can read them from police officers, from a woman who is being, uh, her house is being attacked from an enraged ex-husband, and the door devil defended that attack. Uh, He didn't get in. There's like 20 different testimonials from police officers on the door devil. Go buy it. Defend your home against burglary kick-in attacks. Go to doordevil.com and enter the word best ever whenever you check out and you'll get 20% off on your purchase. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is a show where, well, we cut out the fluffy stuff. We don't get into it. We only talk about the best advice that moves your business forward. And with us today, we have Jeremy Roll, who has been a guest on the show before. How you doing, Jeremy? I'm doing great. How you doing? I'm doing really well and nice to have you back on the show. And if you want to hear Jeremy's best ever advice, then you've got to go back way in the archives to episode 46. That's 46. He was the 46th interviewee that I did the show with and really, really learned a lot from that episode and wanted to invite him back and talk about a specific skill set because... Well, by the way, best ever listeners, I hope you're having a wonderful weekend. Today is Sunday, and because it's Sunday, we're going to be giving you a specific skill that you can take away after this conversation. And what we're going to be talking about is passive investing and specifically diversification as it relates to passive investing. So if you've been interested or if you currently are a passive investor in 
a multifamily syndication, stuff that I do or people like me do, or other types of investments like storage units or perhaps talking about mobile homes or whatever it is, Jeremy is going to walk us through how he approaches passive investing from a diversification standpoint so he doesn't have all his eggs in one basket. A little bit about Jeremy, and then he'll get into it in more detail. He manages a private investor group of over 1,000 investors. He is the co-founder of that group, and it's called For Investors by Investors. He's also an advisor for Realty Mogul. He is currently an investor in more than 50 opportunities, and he's been a passive cash flow investor for over 14 years. He's based in Los Angeles, California. Now, with that being said, Jeremy, you want to give the best ever listeners just a little bit more about your background, and then we'll go right into diversification with passive investing. Thanks again for having me, Joe. I really appreciate it. The best way to describe me is I like to call myself a full-time passive cash flow investor. I've been investing in these alternative passive cash flow opportunities, just like your opportunities, for about 15 years. And actually, I had rotated all my money out of stocks and bonds into cash flow after the dot-com crash way back when in 2002. And to be totally honest with you, cash flow has completely changed my life. It got me out of the corporate world in 2007. And my number one focus now is just continue my cash flow stream because I live off the cash flow. So I never have to go back to the corporate world. And so in the very quick snapshots, that's me. And I'm highly diversified across a lot of different passive cash flow opportunities, including every single asset class you actually touched upon already earlier in this podcast. What are some other asset classes that you invest in that I didn't mention? Let me go over the very quick slew of things I'm currently invested in, and I'll mention a few that are not real estate related. So I'm currently invested in office. These are all commercial real estate. So office, retail strip centers, retail closed mall apartments, student housing apartments, mobile home parks, self-storage. I'm definitely missing some too. Um, There's others. And then I'm also invested in single-family hard money loans, single-family flips, single-family notes. And also, I have a pool of ATM machines that cash flow. I invest in a few cash flowing websites, and those are just the cash flows. I invested in a few startups. That's very unusual for me because that's the opposite risk spectrum. It's high risk. And I'm in over 70 different LLCs right now from a diversification standpoint. All right. You're in 70 different LLCs. If you look at all the dollars that you're investing right now, what are the top two or three areas that those dollars are in? On an individual LLC basis, if you're asking me, the, let's say, the most I've ever invested in one LLC versus a percentage of my total portfolio, it's definitely under 10%. And if you're asking what I'm most concentrated in, in other words, let's say I'm invested, just as an example, in six mobile home park funds. And so if you're asking me what asset class I'm probably most exposed to total, it's actually a great question. I actually don't know that offhand. I am worried about the asset classes, but I'm not overexposed to any individual ones. So I've never done the math on the exact, do I have more in self-storage, do I have more in mobile home parks, or do I have more in apartments? I couldn't tell you that, but it's, it's pretty well spread out is the most important thing. Okay. Do those two or three categories, mobile homes, self-storage, and multifamily, are those the top three, would you say, in terms of total dollars invested? Probably mobile home parks probably self-storage, and probably those three, actually. That's probably correct. And again, I have a spreadsheet with all this. I just don't know the math all. Uh, yeah. We're going to get into diversification, but you just piqued my curiosity. What's a project, if any, that you've lost money on? 
what type of deal was it? Great question. So I've lost money on account stable factoring, which is basically account stable financing, which is called factoring, which is nothing real estate related and which I would call medium to high risk. Yeah, what did, um, I, 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 don't even, I don't even know what you just said. What, will you say that again? What is it? I've lost a little bit of money in what's called factoring, which is account stable financing. Okay. So what that is, which is completely unrelated to real estate, but, to, but it's related to business, is some people tend to be able to finance the purchase of raw goods to create products based on having an account receivable invoice from a customer on what they're getting. In other words, someone could have a product that they've already pre-sold and they have to build, and you can do purchase order financing or account receivable financing. So it could be that somebody already sold something, already delivered it, and they're waiting to be paid on it, but they can't wait that 30 days to then produce the next batch either for the same person or for another customer. So they'll go ahead and they'll have, let's say that when you sell something to Walmart, they'll wait 30 days to pay you, but you have to then produce more for Walmart. You don't have the cash to do it. So the people that use, they use factoring, which is saying, okay, I'm going to bridge the gap so you don't have to wait for Walmart to pay you for 30 days, but based on Walmart paying you, I'll loan you the money today, and then the money that comes in from Walmart comes back, you owe me this money plus interest, and I'm kind of bridging the gap for you. That's what factoring is. Done a little bit of that. What went wrong? What went wrong is that that was just after the 2008 downturn and the business that we were lending money to started to have some trouble and eventually we had to repossess equipment actually, but we were collateralized against it and we had to repossess some equipment to be able to pay some of the loans off. So it was a business that was basically having some financial issues. And you know, when you're doing that type of lending, even though we were cross-collateralized, it's a whole different risk profile than, than doing anything stabilized real estate related. And so the returns are also pretty significant. I mean, just to give you an idea, when you're doing factoring, you're typically making 3% a month on that. That was standard, at least back then. So you're getting paid for the risk, but the risk is definitely there. It's very unusual for me to do something like that. Most of what I do is definitely much lower risk. That was one thing that I lost a little bit of money on. I'm trying to think. I know there was a second thing that I lost money on once. I'm blanking on it, but I don't believe it was real estate related. If it comes back to me, I'll let you know I apologize. Okay. Well, let's talk about diversification. We already did a little bit. We've started the segue on the topic. Let's talk about how you diversify your portfolio. How do you approach it? I would say the basic way that I personally approach it and what I've learned over the years is I need to be diversified across geographies, asset classes, and operators. You really want to just bring it down to the most essential pieces. That's what I find very important, especially from a real estate perspective. And so I'm happy to get into all those if you'd like, but that's the way I look at it from a high level. Yes, please. Let's go one by one. Let's talk geographies. Okay. Geographies. I definitely give you some examples. So I know some investors that like to be really local and they like to invest anywhere they can drive to within an hour or two. And that's totally fine. There's a thousand different ways to invest and they're all perfectly fine. Everyone's going to have their own opinion. But the problem with having that concentration of geography risk is if there's a major earthquake, just for example, and you don't have earthquake insurance on your properties, which is typically the norm. Normally, it's too expensive to have that insurance. If there's a major earthquake here, and you own 10 rental homes within three miles of each other, and they all have issues during the earthquake, and you lose them, I know that sounds extreme, but it's still a risk, what I would call 1% risk, but it's there. Then you could have taken steps to prevent that, but you were too concentrated from a geographical perspective. That's one example. Another great example is weather-related geography. There was recently hurricanes in Florida. I'm going to go ahead and guess that those hurricanes had an effect on some real estate in Florida. And while it might be okay to own some real estate in Florida, I actually have multiple self-storage investments in Florida. 
specifically because they do better in hurricanes than most other asset classes, the way they're built and the potential damage they can have. If you are heavily invested in Florida in different asset classes and, and this one hurricane comes and wipes out half of your properties, that was a weather-related geography challenge. Um, and so there are definitely different ways to look at ge geography, but it really is important to be spread out across different geographical areas. Each geography is going to have its own economic challenges. So if you're invested in a city that you know well because hey, you grew up there and you feel comfortable there, that might be okay. But what happens if it's a town that was relying upon a specific employer who all of a sudden got up and left and maybe outsourced manufacturing somewhere else, and then all of a sudden all of your investments, which were tied to this one economy, have a problem? That's another aspect of geography that's important. And another weather-related geographical thing, a story that I like to really share, is I invest in six funds with a very large mobile home park fund operator. They're actually the fifth largest owners in the U.S. They're known as Frank and Dave. For anyone listening, if you literally Google Frank and Dave mobile home parks, you'll find them. And I remember once Frank shared a story that was really interesting. He mentioned that they invest in the Midwest, and they're, I think, across about 20 states. But they don't invest in an area where there's tornadoes, but they will not invest in an area where there's hurricanes. And the reason why is because if a hurricane comes in and wipes out a mass territory, then... FEMA and other government-related entities that typically come in to help during those times and help to rebuild areas, they're overwhelmed. It's too much damage. There's billions in damage. And they can't handle it. And frankly, the insurance companies are overwhelmed and often can't handle it in a very quick way. Whereas with a tornado that hits more of an isolated area, he's had parks that have had tornado issues. But what happens is that a tornado comes in and, God forbid, destroys everybody's home. Well, hopefully nobody has any injuries. And... FEMA will come in immediately and help because it's a very isolated area, it's very manageable, and they'll come and actually do it from a political perspective also to show everybody that they're really helping the community, and they'll make sure they get the press behind and everything else, but the point is that they'll come in and help, and it's completely manageable. And so tornadoes are manageable in mobile home park world, whereas hurricanes are unmanageable. And so from a geographical perspective, that's something important to consider as well, depending on the asset class you're investing in. A lot of different ways to think about geography and a lot of different angles you really have to take on it to determine if specific geography makes sense for you. That's something I've never thought of or never ever heard and it's so logical, makes a lot of sense and that's also something that really you have to talk to someone who has experienced those things as an investor and really learn their insights and from their experiences because it's not anything you're going to just think of. That's definitely a voice of experience talking about that. And I just want to add that you know, the story with one park that he owned that actually had this problem was that within a very quick period of time, not only did the government come in and help, but literally they actually paid for and brought in all new homes for everybody because it was manageable. And the next thing you knew, his park that he owned the land, but not the home, but his park was comprised of homeowners who had all these new homes in his park, and the park was nicer and better than it was originally and in better condition than it was originally because of all this. So ironically, the tornado was actually a good thing from his perspective long term. So it's really interesting to consider that. All right. Next is you diversify across asset classes. So this one's probably a little bit easier to kind of picture for most people, but that's the kind of story that I was sharing before, which is obviously... If you're going to invest in commercial real estate or any real estate, if you're able to diversify across different asset classes that have different users, that's probably the best thing. Within the asset classes, to have as much tenant diversification as possible is always a great thing. So let's start with the tenant diversification first in an asset class. 
I typically don't invest in apartment buildings unless they're 100 units or more, only because I like the idea that one person leaves the building tomorrow, then your vacancy rate basically goes up by 1%, right? And that can help to promote stability, especially if the building is a larger building, and it helps just keep everything in balance. Uh, clearly, like the, on the opposite end of the spectrum, if you invest in a fourplex, which has four units, and one tenant vacates, you're at 25% increase in vacancy, right? So that's one great thing. It's always have tenant diversification. And that holds true across all asset classes when possible. But then diversifying across asset classes is key because some asset classes perform better in a growing economy, and some of them perform better or manage better through a downturn, which I think will be coming up soon at some point. And some really great examples are office building and retail service center tend to perform very well during a good economy. And some of those can get through a recession quite well, especially like a retail strip center that has anchor tenants that will do well during a downturn, like a big grocery store or our CVS or Walgreens. People will still go to those shops that will do well on the downturn. side, if you invest in a mobile home park or self-storage unit, those can actually perform sometimes even better in a downturn. You know, we look at 2009, self-storage vacancy only increased 1% on average. These are just the National Self-Storage Association statistics that I'm repeating. And the reason why is that they didn't have much more of a problem is because a lot of people were moving in to houses together, but maybe were foreclosed upon, and having to store their items. So there was an increase in demand in self-storage for, for different reasons. So what you want to do as an investor in the long term is be as diversified as possible so that regardless if we're in a really good economy or a bad economy, the cash flow is still going to come in. This is especially crucial if you're someone like me who's dependent on the cash flow to live off of. So the way to achieve that is to obviously invest it across as many asset classes as possible. And I'm not necessarily saying you should invest in every asset class because asset classes aren't for everybody. I'll give you an example. I don't invest in hotels. And the reason why I don't invest in hotels is because, on average, hotels tend to do really well in an upturn or a positive economy and tend to have very quick downturns and a lot of revenue reduction during a downturn. Now, this isn't true for every single hotel location. I'm just making a generalization. And so I don't want to be exposed to that volatility so I don't invest in hotels. You know, I don't invest in industrial properties for a similar reason. And so I'm not saying that hotels and industrial aren't good, aren't right for anyone who's listening, but the point is I'm also not trying to tell everybody to be diversified across every single asset class that exists. You want to be in enough asset classes, you're well diversified, but you've got to be comfortable in all the ones you're actually going to move forward with. And then lastly, operators. Operators, that also is definitely somewhat straightforward in that whenever you invest passively, like you would within a joke together, I like to say you're trading control for diversification. And what I mean by that is that you basically are giving someone else control of the day-to-day operations, and typically when you invest in these opportunities that are passive, you're a very small piece of a bigger deal with pooled together with a bunch of investors. So whatever percentage ownership you have and whatever percentage vote you have for whatever important votes that there are, you're not going to have any control really because your vote probably won't be significant enough to sway things. So if you're going to give up control, you better trade it for diversification. The reason why it's important to diversify across operators is because there's always a 1% risk with operators. There could be mismanagement. There could be fraud. could be a Ponzi scheme. You're increasing your risk inherently by being passive, and the way to mitigate some of that risk is by diversification across operators. And so diversification across operators is really critical so you don't have too many eggs in one basket depending on one set of people who can end up mismanaging things without you realizing so diversification across operators is as important as all the other categories we talked about. How do you know when you should move on from one operator to diversify into another? When we talk about diversification, we actually have talked about any hard numbers, really. And so everyone's going to have their own take on 
the maximum exposure they should have to either an asset class or an operator or geography. I'll tell you, I talked to a lot of investors over the years, and some of the common numbers that I hear that people don't necessarily like to be exposed to an operator for more than 5 or 10% of their total capital that they're allocating for alternative investments, for example. Same thing goes with the geography, same thing goes essentially with an asset class. Now, the challenge with proper diversification that takes a long time. It's kind of easy for me to sit here and tell you I'm in over 70 different LLCs, but I'm 15 years in, and I've actually invested in more than 70 things, but things fell off, but it just takes a long time. But it's also, in my opinion, the best way to do it to reduce your risk. So long story short is that the more diversified you can get, the better. I think that the most common thing I hear is not to put more than 20% of your capital into one opportunity at the very most, but I personally prefer to be at 5% or less when I can, which would mean at least 20 different opportunities. And then when you look at it that way, if you're in 20 opportunities, say, then you can start to determine, okay, of those 20, how many do I want to be in with one operator? How much do I want to get exposed all my money to that one operator? It might be three, it might be five, it might be one, it depends on the person. So it's very subjective. And unfortunately, there's no right or wrong answer. It's whatever you end up comfortable with for yourself. Is there anything as it relates to diversification that you want to mention before we wrap up that we didn't talk about? I would say that I cannot stress the importance of diversification enough if you're going to be passive. And can I tell you, in closing, I will say this. Unfortunately, I have met a number of investors over the years who just put too many of their eggs into one basket. My father did this in real estate and lost all his money on deal one. And so maybe that's why I'm so in tune to it. But I hate, hate hearing stories of people who the only reason why they lost a good percentage of their money is because they just weren't properly diversified. So it's a decision that they had control over. So please, please, if you're listening to this, either already a passive investor or you're going to become a passive investor, please make sure that you start off with a strategy in mind already in advance that you're reducing your risk because ultimately diversification does reduce risk. Jeremy, what's the best place the best ever listeners can reach you? Best way to reach me is through an email. My email address is jroll, which is J-R-O-L-L, at Roll Investments, which is R-O-L-L, investments with an S, dot com. So it's jroll at rollinvestments.com. Thank you, Jeremy, for being on the show and talking about diversification, the three ways that you look at it, asset classes, geographies, and operators, and your personal approach of not having more than 10% of your of your capital into one area, and then just talking through, especially that example of geographies, too, where you talked about the natural disaster, where you're basically picking which natural disaster would you most like to be exposed to and going through the hurricane and tornado example. So thanks so much for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever weekend and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Joe. Are you wanting to get some Dallas, Texas investment properties at steep discounts? Titanium Investments provides solutions for wholesaling investing. They've got some properties. Go subscribe to their newsletter today. Go to titaniumprops.com. That's T-I-T-A-N-I-U-M-P-R-O-P-S dot com.